You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Amy's Choice, so you don't have to. Simon. I'm Andy. And I'm JR. Uh, well, the sound design was really nice. And that's my review. <laughs> <coughs> Let's go home. All right, before we talk about Amy's choice, hi JR. Enjoyed the latest podcast as usual. I was surprised that you all didn't love Claws of Axos as much as I thought you all would. Oh. So this one came after our season eight podcast. I think they would make a brilliant monster to bring back to the new series. And the trouble with the axons is, it's a bit of a one-concept monster, isn't it? So how do you do the axons without the trick already being... Because it's, here we are with our Trojan horse. You mean it's, it's also a monster developed from an idea, which forms the story? Exactly, yeah. that's what yeah, I'm yeah. saying. Yeah. So They brought it back in the magazine, didn't they? Yes. Yeah, I remember that. The golden ones. Mm. And also, they've been in Big Finish. And I've not heard that, but... So, obviously, there are ways around that. How did they do the sound of gold? <laughs> the sound of gold. What does gold who, who, sound like? Yeah, what does gold With sound like? With a 1980s new romantic soundtrack. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's very good. <laughs> no. Ask a silly question. <laughs> they did sort of bring them back with the crinoids. I'll get a silly answer. <laughs> and the mind of evil too. I forgot that got colourised. I feel quite entitled now that I've forgotten how much work went into it. The new 10th Doctor LDOs are amazing, aren't they? I hope they bring in cribbins. Here's another daft question. I hope they bring him in really quickly. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Carry on. Quickly. <laughs> Here's another daft question, says John Hole, who's written the email, who obviously wrote that email with some kind of precognition that we were all going to be asking silly questions as we were reading it out. I'm not a fan of 3D as such, but the day of the Doctor looked amazing. So here's the question. Which classic story do you think would work well if it was 3D-ized? <laughs> Oh, it's he says if it could be converted, <laughs> which I guess it probably couldn't be. But then I'm it's got not sure. to be got to be Planet of Fire with Perry in the bikini. <laughs> surely, <laughs> I mean, surely. Now we're seeing how his brain is <laughs> really wired. I haven't done this podcast for a while. <laughs> it's quite, this is quite. I've forgotten, forgotten what it's like. Do you know what though? I think he's answered his own question. The claws of Axos, with all its oh, yeah. amazing weirdness yeah. and special effects and psychedelia, <laughs> wouldn't that be the perfect one anyway? Mm. Or, or, or Tal- Talons of Wang Chiang, then you couldn't ignore the rat. Or Castro Castro Valva. Castro Valva would be good. But then I think the trouble the with Castro Valva is if you 3 d it, you'd show the effects up even worse. It's also quite dull, so... Mm. I didn't actually see yeah. Day of the Doctor in 3D. I keep forgetting it was done in 3D. I've yeah, never, no, I've never seen, seen it in 3D either. It's hard to see Death in Beige, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Are you talking about the Day of the Doctor? <clears throat> Extra Valva. 
Well, it's only based I've not seen Dead Doctor in 3D. It's ridiculous. No, 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 You're just too busy thinking of your beige quote, weren't you? No. I was thinking about End of the World, actually. That's not classic series. That looked good in 3D. Oh, classic series. But then new series, why not? I don't know. I think Claws of Axos is an obvious answer to that. Or Terror of the Autons. Remembrance of the Daleks. When the Dalek shoots right down the camera. That would look really good. Yeah, you could 3D a whole 100 minute story just for one two second shot. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think so. <laughs> Dimensions <laughs> in time. <clears throat> oh, yeah. yeah right. what, what, in 3D. Get, 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 you mean get the 3D right? Yeah. <laughs> Don't tell me you were forgetting it was in 3D. That was the joke. I, thought, I was <laughs> hoping so. Yeah, it was a multi layered joke that was so multi layered it didn't actually have any like layers a left. That made of it was like a trifle lies. made of paper. Um, what were you just saying? Oh, death, death to the Daleks, where you see the Dalek POV shots. Yes. Down that tube. Yes. That would be uh, interesting. So what we're saying is we wouldn't actually 3D a story, we'd just 3D Bits. some clips. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Editing yeah. highlights. Why not? Well, that's the next step after they've colourised the black and white stories. Fans will start. 3 3D-izing. 3D-izing. Yeah. Bits I, of I remember stories. being quite scared of Planet of the Spiders, you know, being ooh, ooh, yeah. of a formative age, seeing giant spiders on people's backs. So I can imagine people of a certain disposition might be quite scared of uh, seeing 3D mm. giant spiders. So mm. I think it's got to be something where there's a lot of either location or special effects. Ooh, invasion really of the dinosaurs. The... Oh, yeah. Yeah, but no, I don't know. The special effects and that are pretty Ex- flat. Except if they if they're three <laughs> Ding things, presumably they'll replace the special effects with CGI new special effects. Yeah, no, I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> right, we've got another email which is a bit longer and a bit more in depth, which I think we'll come to afterwards. Amy's choice, Anthony Morin, and I've forgotten to do these for the last few episodes, so maybe I'll do a catch up. Maybe I won't. If I've not read out your comment and you made a comment on one of the stories we've already covered since the eleventh hour. Too bad! Anthony Morin, also known as something else, but I'm going to say it right now, says, Ah, the Deck episode. I quite enjoyed this when I watched it, but I quite enjoy this when I watch it, but never really feel like I want to watch it. Steve Herr says, Toby Jones is great, and I have never re-watched this story. This season was the start of me only watching some stories once. I've even revisited The Twin Dilemma and Underworld. Rob Irwin, who made it his first choice in the voting on Series 5, said, Although Amy lost me in general, the moment she tried to shag the Doctor on her own... Oh, although Amy (laughs) lost me in general the moment she tried to shag the Doctor on her own wedding night earlier in the series, seriously, what sort of person does that? I still think this episode, with her at its centre, is brilliant. Yeah, we covered that when we talked about it. David Kitchen, who put it in second place, said, Not a fan of Amy's character at all, but this episode engaged me as I looked for the twists and turns. Kieran Hyman also gave it first choice. The trick that neither of the dreams were real completely floored me as a kid. Although, as a kid. It was a while ago now. (laughs) Although my dad guessed it halfway through. But you can't really watch it the same way twice. Dylan Reese, another great story let down by a poor ending. Psychic pollen, is that the best they could do? <laughs> Brendan Day says, Toby Jones can do no wrong in my eyes, but now he can't play the Doctor. I don't or, know, or I can don't necessarily he? agree with that. Anyway, Brendan says, loved the creepy village scenes and I've never trusted OAPs. <laughs> no, me neither. 
All right, quick run around the table, seeing as there's four of us here on broadcast. Andy, did you like Amy's choice on broadcast? I I, I liked a broadcast and getting a chance to uh, to, to watch it again for this. Um, probably liked it even more. Okay, we weren't going to come to that until we've done around the table on broadcast. Sorry, <clears throat> <Sorry. laughs> you're showing all your cards. You haven't, you haven't been trained up for me, Andy. I, look, I'm a newbie, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Three questions, Andy. What did you think of it in broadcast? How long is yeah. it since you've last seen it? What do you think of it now? For, God, for God's sake, just answer the question that JR asks. It's like otherwise, having Lee otherwise in he'll, lose it, he'll lose it again. It's like having Lee in the room. <laughs> he'll, get the, he'll get the punishment stick out again. In a nutshell, Lee, what did you think of this? Oh, I really liked it. And I tell you, my favourite bits were this, that, well, that's that, cause, that's because Lee comes with notes. Oh and you God. can't resist restarting the nose. Well, this is what Lee's mother couldn't believe in the maternity theatre, <laughs> that Lee came with notes. <laughs> Most other mothers just have to buy a copy of Dr. Spock, but no, Lee actually came with notes. <laughs> Another one were in English. <laughs> None of them were actually in any kind of a language. Okay, uh, Simon, on broadcast. Yes. On broadcast, uh, yeah, I liked it. I can't say any more than that because I'll start talking about watching it just now. Okay, yeah. but I mean, you which can we're say not allowed to. Well, I was going to say that I, it hasn't changed my mind. Second viewing. Okay, I mean, but, I thought you might have gone into more. I really liked it, and what I liked about it at the time was uh, what I liked about it was the idea of it, and I liked the emotional beats, and I liked how Amy responded to it, and the thing that I still don't like is uh, is her. <laughs> stupid, stupid wig. The ponytail. The ponytail. No, I've got a problem with the my ponytail. The whole wig. He didn't need a, a mm. whole stupid Davy Crockett hair, did he? He just needed a ponytail on the back. Well, I think the reason he was wearing a wig was to give you the idea that five years have passed. Okay. Which is where the start of my problems comes in. Okay. But before we get there, <laughs> Matt. On original broadcast, I thought it was. I was disappointed. I thought it was insubstantial. Um, I th- I thought it was the cheaper episode of the series. I really liked Toby Jones was the highlight when I first watched it, um, and I was disappointed because normally I like I like the sort of villagey sets, location based stories, and this one just felt like it was it was a sort of a it was almost like offcuts from the eleventh hour that they just kind of tapped mm, into tapped into a story. The OAPs didn't work, and again, mm. there's no sense of the geography of the village really. It was slightly more than in the eleventh hour, but, but that's because they ran around it a lot. Well, which yeah, Lenox has to be a very long village yeah. um, that requires a camper van in order to get from one end to the other. That's and then you've got so. scenes where they come out of somebody's front door, and you've got this not just village green but castle in front of you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. like yeah, I, I seem to remember when I watched it the first time, thinking, oh, maybe that's because it's supposed to be dreamlike that it doesn't add up, but then. Mm. Well, it does yeah. work in that sense that you get you mm. can't pin down the geography, the geography. so mm. you're you're sort of constantly getting lost. No, no. But by the same token, mm. they're not supposed to realise they're in a dream, and no. if you, <clears throat> and that would be a give. Yeah. In yeah, any normal fiction, not getting the geography would be a give, wouldn't it? Mm. So, 
Yeah. I mean, and so, yeah, there could be a point during the story at which the viewer works out before them, but then you're not supposed to know until the twist at the end, are you? That's the whole... There is a big clue, but yeah. Yeah, that's that's my problem as well, but yeah. we'll get to that. Yeah, we will. Everybody, okay. everybody will get to that because it's such an obvious one. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, that's where I was going to come it's in. It's an obvious one. when that, we get to talking yeah. about which, it now. Which makes me question Kieran Hyman's father, who didn't guess it until halfway through. You're thinking, how slow were you, mister? Yeah, well, kind of. <laughs> Okay, how long is it since any of us have seen it? And um, for a start, I've seen it about a year ago. I think it was the last time I watched this one. Last, oh, go on, Andy. Last yeah. time I saw it was Transmission. Same here, I um, think. Until, strangely, tonight. I, I think probably a year after Transmission, maybe. Yeah, I rewatched it again probably a year or so ago just to see if I liked it any more than I did at the time. And so it's obvious at the time I didn't much like it. But then I was having real problems with Series 5 at the time. All those mm. issues I talked about with um, uh, the Angel two-parter. This was really rubbing me up the wrong way by the middle of this series. And this episode was just a final nail in the coffin. (laughs) For reasons we'll go into. Okay, then, very briefly, what do we think of it now? Simon? I haven't really changed my mind on it at all. The things I liked, I still like. I like the central conceit. Uh, The direction is... The sound design is... It's amazing. Great. Yeah, really good. And some of the direction is brilliant. And some of it Most is... Most of it. Is there's a couple of bits. Which, yeah. The bit where they first fall asleep in the, on the bench is like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that could have been pulled and off a bit Matt better. Matt Smith is brilliant. I mean, all actors are brilliant. But Matt Smith is particularly mm. good in this. Go on then, Andy. Now, improved, disimproved... Um, for me, it's got it's got that. Uh, I've got now the perspective of um, having seen the whole of the Matt Smith era, and obviously we're now into another Doctor, and so you having an overview. Um, what I particularly like about this episode is it, it it's kind of dealing for me with some of the some of the bigger themes of what it is to be a companion um, with the Doctor. And the cho- and 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 that basic essential choice that well, I think it deals with something more specific than that. Yeah, it does, but it but it also talk it also talks about um, you know what it is to be a companion um, on uh, on the TARDIS and the choice that you're making when you become that companion. The, the choice between uh, a life, a normal life, whatever a normal life is, and then this extraordinary adventure that you go on, and and having to you know kind of make a choice, and and in various uh, you know ver- various um, versions, we've seen the effect of that choice um, play out through characters. So you know, most recently, I suppose with um, uh, with Clara, and you know the 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 reverberations and repercussions of her choice to, um, you know, to stay with the Doctor or to have a normal relationship, a normal life. And, and, and for a while, she's kind of trying to juggle the two. She kind of makes her choice in the end because of tragedy taking away Danny Pink. And even then, she's really kind of grappling with, you know, I feel, with what what it is to be a companion. And so for me, Amy's choice is kind of playing around with that, that, that essential thing. You know, Rory wants a settled down, married Well, Amy's life. choice is, should I stay or should I go? Yeah, exactly, yeah. And, and, and yeah, and what form well, does that come in? You know, which yeah, man do I choose? Yeah. I think this fudges it, completely fudges it, and I don't think it does deal with any of those things. No. 
I think this... It's not the simple choice there. Let's get back to this in a minute. Yeah. Because this is... I'm probably going to have... Like at the start of the Angels episode, I'm probably going to have a 20-minute rant <laughs> in a few seconds. But let's find out what Matt thinks. I really, I really... I much preferred it this time. I really liked it. Because of the humour? The humour, it was funny. Um, the performances were great. I'm, it's, this, it's this thing where I've tuned in to Karen Gillan's performance now. So originally, yeah, all that. originally it was too much. Mm. But now now I've seen the complete run, it works. And as you were saying, it works better in the context of the complete of the complete series yeah. and the complete idea of the complete Matt Smith era and the complete Doctor Who era. Yeah. So it's it, it works well as a pivot point. I don't think it fudges fudges Amy's choice because she chooses to be it's not a choice between being with the doctor and leaving the doctor. It's I don't think this between, episode fudges. It's a choice, choice between being with this... the doctor or being with Rory. And the Doctor at the same time. It's a, That's the what na- I mean. The, but it's the nature of her relationship with the Doctor, not whether she's physically with the Doctor. Yeah, but this is what I mean. Well, I don't know if her relationship with the Doctor's approached, really. Well, yeah, because, it because it's, it's a question her and Rory, surely. It's a, it's a question of whether she has a romantic relationship with the Doctor. Okay. Because so she's that question pushing, she's pushing two that. weeks ago. Well, I, I, she stopped pushing for that. I don't think well, that's why this comes... <laughs> At the wrong point. I think this is part of that progression of pushing for that. But well, it's certainly. I know. I think, I think she's, oh. she pushed pushed hard one direction, and then there's been a slow progression to the middle where she's trying to decide whether to go that way or that way because she's gone off Rory, and this is the point where she goes towards Rory, and it sets it up for the Pandorica opens, where it's well, the final the final tragedy. So I really liked it. I liked it. And in fact, you've almost got a dry run of um, Angels in Manhattan. Yeah. At the very yeah. end. Mm-hmm. You know that that scene that scene in the in the room well, where, she, where she decides to die mm. in order to be reunited with Rory. And that that was... almost feels like that scene in the uh, in the graveyard where mm. she turn you know she turns away because she knows that's the only way that she can be with with I Rory. Wonder if there's some future echoes planted or whether they kind of. I don't know. Stephen Moffat is deliberate with the baby. Yeah. I don't think it is. I don't think it is deliberate in that sense. I think he just picks up the echoes. That's what I'm saying. It's deliberate at the other end. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But I was thinking. I was thinking of of uh, Angels and Manhattan as well when I was watching it. It it had that. It had that sort of emotional um, tone. And I think to it for me me, that meant that Amy's choice was successful because it was making me think about the relationship between Amy and Rory Mm. and also where they could end up and where they should end up. And and I think that's what the intention was. It was actually to make you believe in this relationship, so you believed in Amy's choice. It wasn't about necessarily the nature of Amy's choice. It was about whether you actually believed that mm. that she was doing the right thing. Yeah, yeah and no, I, I did, appreciate I did. it's there, but I don't know whether it was. I don't. Maybe I'm a little bit this. <clears throat> I don't think it's asking the question. I think it's providing the answer. I don't think it's asking the question at all. I don't think it's asking what the nature of the companion is, and I don't think it's asking what Amy's place is between the Doctor and Rory. I don't think it's asking that. I think it's just giving you the answer. Yeah, well, I, don't, I don't think it's asking a question. Question. I think. I think it is partly exploring that. that that's area. what I mean. It's not exploring it. No, I don't. It's just providing it's that, yeah, the yeah. answer. But I think if you provide an you provide an answer, you suggest that you don't need a question. If you provide an answer, then the question is implied. If there's but any no, question being what I mean is, no, okay, then let's put it this as... So it's doing something more sophisticated than no, asking a question doing... than providing an answer. It's providing an answer without needing to ask the question at the beginning. No, you're being too literal. I'm not saying it's literally providing an answer without having asked the question first. 
I'm saying what it is is squaring everything off without giving you any room beforehand for there even to be an issue. What I'm saying is that episode from the very start of the episode to the very end of the episode is designed to push Amy towards Rory in order that the marriage can occur at the end of the series. And I'm saying there is no grey area in that episode where Amy might choose the Doctor. No, but the grey area happened in the episodes beforehand. But no, it didn't. It did, in the 11th but, hour and... Yes, and no, of, and that was tied of off at this the end the of the point Angels 2 I, I think I think this episode exists in a space where we've got to already, where we know where the relationship stands, that she's a little bit offish and, and what have you, and she knows exactly the choice. She knows what the right answer is supposed to be, because you get mm. that moment where she gives him a swipe and says, of course I'm picking you. <clears throat> Because that's what a head saying is supposed to do. No, I don't think it's even quite doing that. Well, I think what happens is, in the first five episodes, you get a picture of a person who, the night before their wedding, mm. and you've got to remember, this is a wedding to somebody who's a second choice. Because her first choice would always have been the raggedy man who turned up when she was a kid, mm. and she's hoping he comes back. He does come back. So she says, oh, hang on, first choice is here. And the night before her wedding, she goes off with her first choice. And at the end of the fifth episode, the bit where she tries to snog him and stuff, what you get is a scene where the raggedy man turns out to be still the dream. Because although he's turned up and he's real, he's not this kind of person that you can get married to that she perhaps had fantasised about over these years. But he's still essentially this fantasy fictional character who just happens to actually be there, but it would be like marrying the Wizard of Oz but or Willy Wonka or something but that's like not, that. But that's not her choice. That's not resolving her issue. No, no. That's, that's him. That's him. That's him himself. not being available. But, so her choice still exists. But you didn't let me finish. But I don't think it's the episode that's articulating that. I think that existed already in the whole thing. If there's one question that's being asked in this, in this, it's or, or one little statement that's that's being addressed in this is. Uh, you don't know what you got until it's gone, because that's the only kind of defined thing. Well, that's that kind of that's what, that's and that what foreshadows sort of... what happens in the next story when it really does go, and you actually get that illustrated. Mm. But no, what what I'm I don't saying think that is detracts from the episode. I really don't. But what I'm saying is, you get in episode five the scene where it becomes absolutely clear to Amy that she ain't going to have a romantic relationship with the Doctor. And then in episode six, the Doctor puts a full stop on that by going back and fetching her prospective husband. And then in episode seven, you get the bit where she actually has to make the choice. But the choice has already been made for her by the author of the series. What I'm saying is there's no grey area there I, where Amy will make any other choice. I think the grey area is in is in Amy's head. So at the end of season five, the doctor, <coughs> the doctor doesn't make Amy's decision for her. Amy Amy still hasn't made her decision. Right, but the doctor, what I'm saying The doctor that, tries to get her to make a decision, then he spends the next episode bringing Rory back and she still hasn't made the decision. This is the story where yes, Amy makes the choice. But it's not really obvious there's no other choice going to be made. There's no grey area. There's no doubt whatsoever. And that's the big issue. Are you, with saying, this... are you saying no grey area in, in Amy's mind or in the audience's mind? Because in a the difference. audience's well, mind. Well, that doesn't matter because we're talking about it what, ha- what happens with matter. Amy's character. It kind of I mean, does that's, matter. That's the, flaw of this, that's the flaw of this story in general is because if there is a flaw, 
it's because the dream that they're in is so obviously a dream because mm-hmm. Amy's pregnant. Mm-hmm. And I think that extends, I, I agree. That, yes, and that also extends to her, to, choice, to her choice as well. But I think taking that flaw to one side, I think the, the actual thing that Andy was talking about, which is the companion's choice, and it's talking about companion's choice, and it's talking about Amy's choice, that's still there. Mm. No, but Whether it's, it's believable or not, I think it's still it's mm. still a part of a key part of the episode. But I, I just think, don't think it was executed well enough. No, no okay. I don't think it was executed at all. Because I think every time it comes up, it's not saying to either the audience... But it is saying it to the character, but implicitly it's not saying to the character, here's your choice. What it's saying to the character is, that's your choice, and also I'm going to lead you to believe you've got this one. Which is also presented metaphorically in the episode, where the Dream Lord presents her with choice of two fantasy situations, Mm. and says to her, one of these is real. And I think that's where the big issue with the episode is. It presents two fantasies and says one of these is real. You have to choose the real one, which is like saying you've got the Doctor and Rory and one of those people is real and the other one is a fantasy. You have to present the real one. And this is why it fudges it, because when it turns out that both of the realities are fantasies, which is obvious right from the very first scene, you know, where you split off between the two fantasies, it's saying that's not a real choice. I didn't think they were obvious. They were both obvious from the first scene. I thought the Ledworth mm. scenes were obviously a fantasy because of the pregnancy. Mm. That, was the, but, that was the elephant in the rooms. They kept saying, no, the elephant. I think the TARDIS scenes, I think when it turned out that the TARDIS scenes were a fantasy, I think that was a more successful twist, which I didn't yeah, see coming def- on the original. Yeah. Really? Yeah. But surely the only way it can play out is by presenting an obvious fantasy and something opposite that, which is less obviously a fantasy, the only twist you can possibly have is that the one that's not obviously a fantasy is also a fantasy. Well, if if you know that the story's going to have a twist, but that's not always, not every story yes, has a twist. Yes, but it sets so. itself up to have a twist. Well, only towards the end, I think. No, only, it sets only itself when... up from the start to have a twist, because as soon as you go from one reality to another reality, it's asking you a question. And if one side of that question's already answered then the answer to that question, which you have to have at the end of the episode, has to be that the other one is answered in the same way. I think it's flawed from the start. I, th- I, think, the, I think the concepts are there, and I know that the concepts are there because we've just been talking about the concepts. Yeah, the, so concepts, the concepts are there. great. I think the execution <clears throat> was poor, and I think, for me, the, the, the source of that is... The Ledworth scenes needed to be more real. The Ledworth scenes mm-hmm. needed to be more believable, or at least there needed to be two, two a dream, two different dreams, both of which would be a viable. Well, the issue is that thing. he turns up mm-hmm. and it's five years later, mm-hmm. and the trouble with that is because Stephen Moffat's got thirteen episodes to get through this story of how this girl that the Doctor meets as a child ends up marrying the bloke that she's destined to marry in spite of the Doctor rather than because of the Doctor and then she marries him because of the Doctor rather than in spite of the Doctor if you see what I mean in order to get all the way through that in 13 episodes and tell exciting science fiction stories as well it has to leap and jump like Russell T Davis's first series leaps and jumps in certain places Mm -hmm. yeah so and and like the Danny Pink one does as well but the leaping the leaping and jumping is fine so long as this so long the story as... doesn't rely on it not leaping and jumping. It would be and better. this one, it'd be better if this was 
if this was vampires in Venice and you didn't know if the vampire scenes in Venice was a dream and then well, it, I mean, it wouldn't it, quite work. But it would that's, essentially that's be true. better if you, this came immediately after the angel one and you never see them pick up Rory. Yeah. So you don't know yeah, if yeah. the Rory's travelling yeah. with them. Mm. Or if you had at least two stories with Rory in between. Mm. So you could plausibly be at a place where you're looking forward to yeah. five years in the yeah. future. Mm. But to have Rory have one flight in the TARDIS and then say, and right, now we've finished with Rory and here he is five years yeah, in the future. It's, it's a bit of a joke. It's implausible. Yeah. 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 It's how it feels for me. It's like a tug of war. And this spent most of the time over one side where we knew it was going to, be, it was going to go that way anyway. Mm. Do, do you know what I mean? There, yeah. there was no doubt. Yeah. It didn't seem to swing between the two sides. Yeah. I was and more, worried about the, more worried about the, the cold star than I was about the, the old age pensions. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Basically. That's, yeah. that's that's where I thought the jeopardy was. Mm. And mm. then yeah, I didn't I didn't see the twist coming. But it's hard talking about plausibility and reality in a Doctor Who episode where, you know, kind of implicit in a story is a certain amount well, of yeah, it's strangeness. It's ironic that the, the most implausible thing in a Doctor Who episode is the pregnancy and actually not old age pensioners with <laughs> no, eyes coming Rory's out of their mouth. Well, That's yes, and yet, natural, re- re- but, reality but is implausible in a Doctor Who story. Yeah, yeah, but the exactly, thing, yeah. yeah, it's interesting. But the thing is, if you're going to tell a, a Doctor Who story, you have to make the logic of the story out of yeah, the universe has to work that, mm. that, that, that you're creating. But what, yeah. but what you've got here is, yes, you've got a universe where the logic adds up, but that's not what the story's about. Mm. The story's about Amy making that choice mm. between the Doctor and Rory. And so the plausibility or implausibility mm. of the fantasy sequences actually undermines the choice. Mm. I mean, yeah, yeah, and when you consider that at the end it's all nullified anyway because it was all going on in their heads, mm. it's like, oh, right, well, it, it was, it was, that was the one thing I liked about it. That was the one thing I liked about it. No, I don't mind, I didn't yeah. mind that, but like you say, that choice isn't. But it doesn't matter that she makes a choice in her head because where else do you make a choice? No, absolutely, absolutely. So I'm that not, was, I thought, the one successful I'm thing not, about the episode was that it told that episode of the story. I think. When you consider that it was about that choice, I in head, that was the crux of it. I mean, it's the fact the of... fact that they say Amy's choice about half a dozen times through. I mean, that was the thing that grated with me. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Especially spelled the last time. it out. Yeah, um, I could have done with a bit less of that. Obviously, she was having to make a decision. But for me, one of the Do other... you know, before you go on, oh, yeah. just to cut in on that point, I don't mind them spelling things out, considering that six-year-olds are going to be watching, right? Mm. But their whole sort of this is Amy's choice between the Doctor and Rory thing is more for the grown-ups in the audience than it is for the kids. And it's all about the sort of subtext of what the story is anyway. Mm. So in that instance, yeah, you don't need to spell it out no. for the kids because you're not aiming that but sort of did they actually level re- of the did episode. They actually repeat the, the title that many times. I only heard it once. I, no, I, I heard it a few obvious. times. You okay. know, it was either choice or um, that... The, there were several okay, occasions okay. where it was Amy's choice. Yes, yeah. Right at the very end, when they're about to go off somewhere, the Doctor himself is he's... Oh, oh that was Amy's choice. Amy's choice. <laughs> yeah, okay. And is it was one of those yeah, where on paper got, it might have worked a bit better. So we say it all this time, but it actually it's like at the end of the series end. six, yeah, where you've got the repetition. Was of just, it just felt just you know one or two times too many. Mm. But for me, one of the other interesting things, and, and perhaps it doesn't explore it particularly in, in any depth. And perhaps that's something f- uh, for further exploration is the idea that actually what we've got here is um, not so much just an exploration of um, Amy's internal 
decision-making process, but we're get, also getting an insight into the Doctor himself and a rather dark side of the Doctor who quite fancies his companions. Mm. It's not really uh, gone into in any deep level, but basically we've got to remember that the Dream Doctor is the dark subconscious of the And he's the doctor. leering over Amy. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he's talking about how he loves the redheads and and, and uh, one, one moment when uh, I think... Isn't Raw... that just referring back to Donna, though? Um, well, he makes he makes a Elizabeth the first reference. Oh yeah, of course, yeah. Um, yeah. And so I, I don't think he. That's me. I'm, I don't think I'm he particularly has a thing about redheads. Uh, yeah. But he likes he likes his ladies young. Obviously. Well, the Dream Lord is okay. If we put it into this perspective, if the Dream Lord is something akin to the Veil Yard troll, no, something akin to the Veil Yard, where it's an aspect of the Doctor's personality that's split far enough away from the actual Doctor that it can sort of have conscious thoughts of its own mm. so it can develop um things that it likes and dislikes mm. of its own mm. but it can only develop those out of what it's got from the doctor's personality mm. so if it likes redheads then the doctor might like redheads and other things as well and so this aspect has latched onto the redheads part of it mm. and then the other it's thing distorting it as well or, or it's just trying to wind the doctor up yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. The, that's mm. the he's mischievous. Well, that's what he's doing. All he's the got way the sort of doctor's mischievousness, mm. but he doesn't use it for the same reasons exactly. that the doctor uses the mischievousness. Mm. But the so thing, essentially, it is him, yeah. isn't it? But I it's mean, but, made manifest but, by the psychic. But because column. it's Toby Jones, it's almost like this sort of squatting toad-like figure yeah. as well. So it's a kind yeah. of a it's kind of a corrupted version because he's yeah. so well, good and he's so kind of so well, so yeah. much the opposite of Matt Smith. But what I got from it, and this could either be really clever or just a complete coincidence, is, and I've said this before, every time the Doctor regenerates, and it's made explicit in the dialogue, every cell dies and a new cell replaces it, which means that each time the Doctor regenerates, he is effectively a completely, literally new person who retains the memories and some of the personality traits, like he will do good things rather than bad things or whatever, of the old. So this Toby Jones dream lord has to be an aspect, not of the Doctor in general, but just of this Doctor specifically. Mm. Now, this Doctor specifically is the one who's like Bambi in the headlights whenever he's presented <laughs> with anything sexual. Yes. We see him... Not just in at the end of the Angel two-parter with Amy Pond, but every time he encounters River Song and she's trying to persuade to him they have a sexual relationship, he's like a 12-year-old who's mm. never been out with a girl. Is it really clever? Have they distilled anything that might be sexual that's been retained from any of the other Doctors into the Dream Lord and that's why the 11th Matt Smith incarnation himself has got none of it? Or is that just coincidence? I, th- I think it's probably I, just coincidence. I think the bit, the, the louche bit, the really great louche bit where he's got a medallion and he's got oh, the thing. Oh, that's yeah. brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that clearly is what Matt Smith's Doctor is like underneath, the sort of corruption that, underneath. Because he thinks, I don't think it's think, there. He thinks he's looking really cool, but actually it's completely unsuccessful. Oh, well, that's yeah, yeah, in that the respect, yeah. is grotesque. It's not mm. alluring at all. But he's is this an aspect of either the Matt Smith Doctor or the Doctor in general, that wants to seduce one of his companions. Well, this is what I mean. So here comes the aspect who wants to seduce one of the Doctor's companions. And is that why? Because this has been split off from his personality Mm. and maybe it took that part of the personality away with it. And that's why Matt Smith's Doctor's like a Bambi in the headlights Mm. whenever he encounters River Song. Mm. I mean... 
Possibly that's just coincidence. Mm. But then again, you know, two episodes earlier, we've got the scene with Matt Smith and Karen Gillan in the bedroom. So maybe this is in Stephen Moffat's mind already. Mm. And although Stephen Moffat's name's not on that episode, his hand is all over I'm sure. It. I'm sure his fingerprints are all over I don't know, it kind of relates to that comment. Is that in, um, is that in Deep Breath? Where they say about the Doctor's been in, in this young body because he's flirting. Flirting with his companions. Yeah, well, yeah, something breath? like that. Or yeah. it's deep breath where he decides he's not going to flirt with his companions anymore, no. so he doesn't need a young body mm. anymore. It's kind of like a rock and roll star type mm. thing. It's just, yeah, I just think it's like a swagger. Really. Yeah, but this is really so. This episode, even though it doesn't hold together, it log- achieves a hell of a lot. It's really funny. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> I mean, very I, funny I mm. throughout. I and tell the you timing what. was great. Yeah, and the, it had you. You noticed George A. Romero. References. Well, well I mean, the, the, the old age <laughs> Which is obvious. Yes, yeah. yeah. I was thinking Hot Fuzz as I was watching oh, yeah, it. Because yeah. there's lots of, particularly the bits where they're, be- they're beating up <laughs> OAPs. It's a massive the, the, kind of... The one, the one sh- uh, shot that actually shocked me is, is the bit where um, uh, Matt Smith gets a, a, a lampstand and shoves this OAP off the roof. Um, and it's like one of the most shocking things I've ever seen yeah, because yeah. it's an old old biddy. Yeah, but that's exactly, that is <laughs> I a think that's what it was going for. Yeah. Really... yeah, it was, a, I mean, it's kind of shock comedy value, but yeah. it was quite... Well, on quite, that point, God. these old age pensioners have got these creatures living inside them, but does that mean the old age pensioners are actually dead? Can they not survive this? Or if the creatures were taken out of these old age pensioners, would they go back to just being old age pensioners? Because it's, I don't think that's ever made explicit. It sounds like, it's, 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 it's it sounds like creatures, alive, yeah, because yeah. the Doctor keeps saying they're very old. And yeah, it sounds but then like you look at them and they're not really... No, they were no, no, but they've been kept preserved. Yeah. They've been kept preserved. Because, that's what I mean, because they didn't the, the sell joke, that very The joke well. is Rory thinks he's an excellent Doctor because he's oh, been yeah, keeping yeah, yeah. all these old age pensioners alive. <laughs> and it turns out it's these monsters inside them which have been doing that. What I mean is in the casting, I don't yeah. think they're really well, yeah, Obviously, no. they couldn't no, wrap no, up no, enough no. 80 oh, okay, or 90 okay. year olds. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, they would kill to them. do stunts. In the, <laughs> in the snow as well. Which, um, yeah. Now, this episode achieves a lot and has a lot of depth and texture and layer to it. Mm. And it's absolutely pivotal in Series 5, mm. in the ongoing story of Series 5, which is not the story of the cracks, it's the story of Amy's wedding. Mm. But I, I can't get past the fact that you go in and there's a fundamental issue at the start mm. that the conundrum doesn't work. I've yeah. said this before on this podcast, but not for a long time. I don't know if Andy or Matt, either of you, have ever heard this. I think it would have been better if the Dream Lord hadn't introduced itself and they had had to work out for themselves that there was a choice was. to be made. Mm. Or not have him at all. No, no, no. Mm. Not not have him at all, but mm. have him turn up in a variety of disguises Okay. so that they don't even realise until maybe the third or fourth time they see him that it's mm. the same bloke they keep saying all over, seeing all over the place. They could have done that in a sort of sleuth kind of a it's, way. It's almost an Anthony Amy. Yeah. Yeah. A, a thing. You'd have to More do Michael like, Caine in You'd sleuth, have to do it well. Yes. And it probably couldn't be Toby Jones if you were doing that, if we were, if the disguises were going to work, because Toby Jones is so distinctive. He is now. I think you could have got away with it then, because he wasn't that well known then. He's not very well, maybe not well known. I think he's a bit more known. Very now, distinctive. Yeah, yeah but he's also a it's really like, good actor. It's like putting Matt Smith, Matt Smith's a very distinctive looking Yes, actor. but that's what I mean. You put, you don't just put him in a hat, you put him in a mask. Okay. 
I'm saying there yeah. are ways yeah, you yeah, could yeah, have yeah, done yeah, it yeah, where you yeah, could have had yeah, Toby yeah, Jones turning up. And even if you do recognise him, there's your mystery starting to unfold. Why is this bloke doing all these different jobs, mm. thinking he's different people? I guess, I guess they needed to get past the mystery of the Toby Jones's character to the mystery of which dream is which very, very quickly. Because yeah. that's that's the that's the the substance of the story. I mean, the trouble is that it treads water for half an hour after he says, you've got a mystery. Hmm. You know, between the point where he says, you've got a mystery, and I looked, it's 12 minutes in, hmm. to the point at which the mystery is solved, you've got 30 minutes. And that's... <clears throat> That's sort of treading water because what that you're doing in those thirty minutes is doing character stuff. Mm. You could have done the character stuff while the mystery was unfolding. Except, except actually, the mystery is set up at the end of the pre-title sequence. Oh yeah, essentially, sequence, is, yeah. That's, that's where what I'm saying is the point the, where he yeah, where says he what the mystery yeah, is. He, yeah. he says yeah. these are the rules. This is what's happening. You're in yeah. two um, realities. Which one's real? Yeah. So from so, four minutes or whenever the titles are to mm. twelve minutes, you've got eight minutes where you've got a mystery. Mm. And from the point at which he spells it out, that was when I got it, mm. as it were, on for first broadcast, when he pointed it out that it was a choice between two realities and my head just said, well, it's neither of them. Mm. If you'd have held that off, I think it would have been more interesting mm. to, to watch all that character stuff as they were trying to work out why they were going backwards and forwards. Because mm. the Doctor says, as they... Go into the pre-titles, don't trust anything, doesn't he? Mm. This is going to be a weird one or whatever. This is going to be a difficult one. What it makes me think of is that one of my favourite Red Dwarf episodes, Back to Reality, Mm. where they get put into this game, this this virtual reality thing. But it was done in such a way that it was actually really quite disorientating. Where You literally thought they'd woken up and they were all these different people. And there was no... That didn't happen here, really, did it? No, there was no doubt. So you watched it thinking, oh my God, it's... Has Red Dwarf been like this this game all the way through? Yeah, and with the Red Dwarf thing, the idea wasn't the idea that the, the alternative reality is a sort of drug that's mm. addictive, so that you get people that are sort of living in this alternative reality. Mm. And the question is, do you to prefer escape from, yeah, to yeah, live there? Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Which, which get... I think, which is what you they were sort of what they were trying to get you to feel because Amy's pregnant, they're having a cozy life in Ledworth. Mm. Rory's a doctor, which is what he always wanted to be. Mm. But actually, that works for them as characters. Well, it works for Rory, thing, but not for the think, audience. I don't think it worked quite as well for, for Amy. For Amy. No. And that, that, that's where the tension is yeah. supposed to lie. And they the do story. make it explicit, like yeah. a third of the way through the episode, where he says, Well, I prefer this reality. And she says, You know, you would, mm. you get, or the doctor says, You would, you get to be a doctor and all this. Mm. And Amy kind of says, Yeah, why? And he says to Amy, We get married. And she says, what she essentially says is we could do both. Mm. You know, she doesn't actually say that. She well, says, she, would you want to you give know, this up? Like every modern woman, she wants she wants to try and have it all, basically. But, yeah, and so what she's the idea she's setting up there is, why couldn't you have both? Mm. And again, I think that undermines, because you already know it's a mystery, mm. I think, again, that undermines the mystery. Because, mm. again, the only answer to that question, he wants, she wants to keep travelling, mm. he wants to get married... What's the solution? Mm. You get married and keep travelling. Yeah, or, yeah, she doesn't want to make a choice. I mean, that, 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 that's the, the vibe that I get through much of the story, that actually she doesn't want to choose. She wants to have her cake and eat it. And unfortunately, and the, of... the, 
the circumstances are forcing her to make a choice. Except they don't, because this is no. all a dream. No. And at the end of the series, at the point where she'd have to make a choice, she gets married, the doctor comes back and says, honeymoon trip. Yeah. And she does get to have a cake and eat it. Mm. So this episode is kind of a red herring for what's going to happen at the end of the series. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a flawed masterpiece because I think there are lots of really interesting elements, things that haven't um, been explored in quite that way before that, that talk about more universal themes to do with the Doctor and Companions and also to to do with the Doctor's own interior life and, you know, we, we, we he's a man of action. We see the deeds that he does throughout the universe. But what is he really like inside? You know, I what, don't think what, it tells you, though. No, no. I, that's why I say flawed masterpiece, because I think there is the nub of a really interesting mm. Doctor Who idea really going into what's in this man's head. But I think it only ever tells you what it needs to tell you to get to the resolution of the story. Mm, yeah. So it doesn't, like I said like half an hour ago I don't think it asks any questions it just says right there's a question mm. and here's the bit of the answer you need to get mm. to the end really of the episode yeah, yeah. if I look at a list of all the episodes in, in uh, series 5 and I get to Jamie's choice I think oh yeah sorry, that's a bit of a special one that one you know with what it deals with and then I watch it and it's just it's got these old people in it and it's just mm. it's a bit, bit drab to look at actually yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's a different one I like the um, I like the icy TARDIS that was mm, really mm, pretty. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And the, and, the effect and, of the, and the, the performances between all the leads. Yeah, I just yeah, think yeah. you know it's all sparking and it and it and it flows really nicely. Yeah. And I think uh, as we were saying earlier on, you know, the the character of Rory um, is is a difficult one to shoehorn in anyway. He he literally is the the gooseberry, and it's a character that you know could um, uh, fall on fall on its feet very easily and yeah I think in episodes like this you know um, the combination of the writing and Arthur Darville does make it work he's a legitimate he's essential um, ca- yeah. character yeah mm. and actually, because of the story that's yeah. been told and it's it, the it one... could so easily not work if he was done just as a sort of a third wheel and it works it works in this story and it also sets it up for the next story where mm. he actually dies so it this Amy's choice gives weight to Rory's death mm. at the end of the Silurian story. Do you know what? This... Yeah, my experience when I first watched the series was it the opposite. It. Yeah, yeah, undermined it. Right. Because you, know, you started getting the jokes of, God, how many times what? is he going to die? <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but see, this does something very deliberate. It kills Rory in the dream to preempt killing him in real life mm. so that when he gets killed in real life, we already know that that's the choice she would have made. Mm-hmm. So when he gets killed in real life, that's like really whipping the rug up from underneath her. Yeah. And it's, and yeah, this isn't the stage where they, they, he turns into Kenny from South Park. Yeah, the next time he dies, the first he time he dies, just... the second time he, he dies and you're supposed to think that that's actually him dying in real life. It's when he dies for the third time, the next season. <laughs> yeah, the next time he doesn't actually he die, does he? he just ceases to exist because she doesn't remember him. We know, we remember the doctor. Sucked, you get sucked mm. up her crack. Anyway. <laughs> Do you know what this reminds me of? Actually, I was going to say this about five minutes ago, but it got away from me. It reminds me of a version of Murder on the Orient Express where you've got the Belgian on the train and only two other people and one of them's dead. 
Do you know what I mean? You're not right. going to spoil murder on the Orient Express, are you? I've already spoiled it three times in this podcast, <laughs> so fourth oh. time won't hurt. Oh, this is done it. No, but you're kind of missing the point. If there are only two other people on the train and one of them's dead, then yeah. there's no mystery as to yeah. who the murderer is. No. That's what I'm saying. That's This episode is like a mystery with only one solution. Right. With only one possible solution. Mm. Mm. Even if you don't get what the solution is till the end. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Looking back at it, it's so streamlined yeah. towards I th- I where it ends w- up. I think what I got from second viewing was I stopped thinking of it as a mystery because it so obviously doesn't work as a mystery. And once you abandon that idea and just look at it as a comedy, enjoy yeah. it. Yeah. And it's great. <laughs> it is and very funny. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, mean, I think that saves, for me, that saves the episode. It, it makes it. If I, you abandon the idea, I think this is the reason why on first viewing it didn't work for me because. I knew it was supposed to be a mystery and I could see all the flaws and I could see that it wasn't working as a mystery. The second time I knew it wasn't going to be a mystery from the beginning because I remembered all the flaws. Mm. I forgot about it being a mystery and just watched it for the Well, this is the locks. This is the great thing about some Doctor Who stories and I think this is a great thing about some classic Doctor Who stories is that once you know what the story is, you don't watch it for the story anymore. No. no. And the this is really funny. It's really yeah. fun. The characters do great things. The acting's brilliant. And the interplay between the four main characters is fantastic. Mm-hmm. So you can completely switch your brain off about what the story's yeah. about mm-hmm. and just enjoy watching and if it. You think, if you think about it, if you watch Talons of Wen Chiang or Deadly Assassin You're not for, watching for the story, mystery, no. then they're rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, really bad. You don't watch them for the mystery. You watch them for the the scenes between the characters that's... and Tom Baker and the jokes yeah. and the racism. <laughs> yes. But that's the great thing about second viewing that the um, on the first viewing, you are trying to follow plot. Sometimes it's quite difficult in a Doctor episode to follow mm. plot because it's so dense or there's lots of things you know kind of going on. Um, but once you're past that and you're coming back to it for the second time. Yeah, the, the the plot or the plot following does take a little bit of a back seat, and then there are other things that come to the fore. And certainly in this episode, it is the performances. Mm. Um, yeah, there's some, there's some nicely directed bits. The sound design mm. is is very good uh, and very important in places for to make mm. it work. Mm. Um, yeah, there there are other things that come to the fore to to enjoy. It's a, it's a shame I felt the need to explain it with a pollen. Because I think if that had been left ambiguous, or mm. or even you know afterwards, mm. I don't know why it did it that way round. Here's this psychic pollen which makes something out of your sort of subconscious mm. become real. So the dream lord's been born out of my subconscious because of the pollen. Mm. Why don't you just do it the other way around? Somewhere in the universe, my alter ego is kind of not corporeal, but you know what I mean. Mm. It could just have said I. Like any person, there's ego and id going on. Mm. And because I'm a Time Lord, sometimes my ego or id, depending on which way around you want to read it, will take on a kind of form and play a trick on me. Because at no point does the Dream Lord actually turn up in reality. So it's not like he takes on corporeal form at any point. No, because so, then it does that thing of him, you know, showing his face. There's, a, reflect, the, there's a reflection. The, the oh, but that's, that's just a fantasy. That's just yeah. A, yeah that's yeah. just yeah. a. Yeah. Mm moment like the hand at the end of Carrie. It's not <laughs> yeah. supposed to actually lead to anything no, or like mean mirror, anything. Like the mirror it's just Hartnell. A, yeah, yeah. It's just yeah, a yeah, yeah. Well, actually, the, bit, for the audience. The bit that I found most interesting about that end scene is how sort of um, 
matter of fact the doctor is about um explaining who the dream lord was you know mm. oh didn't 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 you know you know that was me that was the dark me and what didn't make sense you know, about that was so why didn't he just say it earlier yeah, because he know I mean, he, makes, that... he makes a couple of references halfway yeah, through. Dark, well, I know who you are. <laughs> you get that you get the sense that before during the in the dreams he's slightly embarrassed by the fact that yeah, when, when the dream lord's there he's slightly embarrassed by he's him. cottoned on. But it's only early. when only when the dream lord's gone that he can relax. Well, he relaxes and he's actually a bit more. I quite like that bit. I quite yeah. like the fact that he was a bit blasé about it. And yeah, no, I mean, I, no, I I like it as an yeah. element as well. You know, did. Didn't you expect this of me? He's almost saying, you know, that yeah. there's a really dark side to me and you've just had a glimpse of it. But, yeah. but then that that's a kind of a superficial thing, because when you see the reflection of the dream world, dream world that's what he's really thinking. So he's saying mm. this to kind of soothe his companions. But then he mm. looks into the reflection, and, sees the dream and, world and, and yeah. it becomes clear that actually... It he's worries him, frightened, yeah. and he doesn't want to let them know. Yeah. It's, 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 so it's a part of him that he that. knows exists, and actually, maybe isn't that far away from mm. from from the surface. I mean, who yeah. who knows? And we've seen it obviously with the sixth Doctor in the Veil Yard, because mm. that is essentially what we're talking about here. Mm. Except there, it is made corporeal. So, mm. yeah. and, and Amy picks up on this quite early on. There's a scene in the um, uh, the the old people's home where she. Meant um, with the the, the um, I think the dream lord says um, something about I've always been around, and she picks up on the word always. Mm. She's realised that the dream lord is something that has always been around. Mm. So I think that's when she slightly cottons on to the fact that. And then the doctor this... dismisses it. Yeah. Well, yeah, because plot wise he has to because we yeah. can't we can't know that early on. In fact, it was a little bit of um, I don't know. The, almost a bit of a no, too early a giveaway really but, but also in the in the build-up i remember in the build-up to this story this was one of those double bluffs that stephen moffat puts in intentionally to try and get fans to start saying well maybe it's maybe it's the valiard maybe it's the master right. maybe it's <laughs> maybe it's romana somehow or maybe it's susan coming back so there's always like there's always a mysterious time <laughs> that just, that's, that's what they that's what the Rani. they always have like a female a female character that comes back yeah. and it was me mm. and missy and all of these characters and everybody always thinks or cara even mm. they're always thinking it's either susan the rani or romana <laughs> coming back and this was the same if there's a male character it's a bit like the doctor <laughs> it's, it's always the master yeah. Yeah. the balliard the, the meddling monk, the meddling monk. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and i think this is done intentionally this is he knows what's going to set the what how to market the series amongst mm. fans mm. for free mm. and that's by slipping in these kind of these kind of double bluffs and of course what happens then is you've got the added benefit of fans are <clears throat> so busy looking for it to be one of these other characters mm. that they don't spot what's immediately obvious when he turns up in a bow tie mm. that it's it's a know, version of him yes yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, his 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 get up should sort of uh, um, sound alarm bells as much as anything. You know, he's he's obviously a very, um, you know, he's a he's a version of himself. And of course, the bit with the bow tie is filmed entirely on the TARDIS, so you can keep the bow tie out of your pre-production, mm -hmm. your sort of pre-publicity rather. Yes. So you don't actually get to see that yeah, until you you're saw, watching the episode. You saw him wearing the the suit on in the photographs before. You know, the fan taken photographs. Mm. You saw Toby Jones in the suits and wearing a hat. 
looking slightly Time Lordish. Mm. So that's that was done. Yeah, and that could be fun. interpreted anyway. I yeah. thought it was the Time Lord from the start of Terror of the Autons because of that yeah. hat. Oh yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. Well, I quite liked him in the blue tracksuit. Isn't he wearing a blue tracksuit at one stage yeah, of the time? Yeah, mm. yeah. yeah. <laughs> Strange. I liked him in his loose dressing gown. <laughs> Just needed some um, some Barry White in the background. And I, think, yeah. I think he'd have been well away there, wouldn't he? <laughs> oh, yes. Should we score this sucker? Because we are a bit short of time tonight, okay. so we're going to do a fairly short episode this week. Um, you mean it's going to be an hour? No, it's not going to be an hour. But we've done quite well for us. It's going to be close. Yeah. Oh, we've got a. It will be after that. All oh, right. Email. Okay. Right. I'll give it. I'll give it seven. <laughs> Quick. Uh, uh, so Matt gives it a seven. Andy. We're not allowed half points these days. No, are we? no. It's no. got to be integers got, on right, this podcast. Okay. Um. Yeah, I'd have to say seven as well. Um, you can I, say a strong seven. It's a, yeah, it's a strong seven because I think there are lots of really strong themes to explore perhaps it doesn't do it as well as we would want or hope or perhaps as well as other episodes but um certainly in terms of like getting into the the mind of the doctor i think that's rich territory for other stories other episodes shimon i mean i think it could have been exceptional as a concept um and strangely I'd, i'd give it a seven as well because mm. because it's highly enjoyable for its own uh, on its own merits, mm. but it could have been yeah could have been brilliant. I'm going to give it a seven because it could have been a ten. Uh, but even though I find the sort of central conceit of it really disappointingly handled, everything else about it is so good. You couldn't give it less than a seven, mm. but it's hard to give it more than a seven. So that's four sevens. Mm. So what's the average score we've given it? <laughs> four sevens is 28 divided by the four of us so we've given it a seven yay yay yeah. <laughs> if my maths could do that <laughs> oh my god don't bring me up do you know what somebody at work asked the other day they said um, if you do a thousand hours at ten pounds an hour how much do you earn hundred well, ten thousand yeah somebody at work couldn't do ten lots of a thousand being Ten thousand. All right, ten lots of a thousand. Yeah. A thousand hours. I'm just, I'm just, showing, <laughs> just showing my ignorance on air. Now. No, no, no. That's what I mean. Right. You took it for a more complicated was, question than it was. Right. If, if you, you do a thousand, thousand hours at ten pounds an hour, hour. Yeah. Oh, right. ten, yeah, yeah. No, I'm just saying that some people that that logic doesn't work though. Do they've got like, some kind of math, mathematical dyslexia. Yeah, yeah. Does happen? Yeah, like me. I'm not saying what you're saying. I know what you mean. Jr. hasn't got any more math math questions for you. It's good. Unless he has. Sometimes that. Oh, my favourite math question of all time is: if you express the sum 2.4 plus 2.4 equals 4.8 in the form of integers, what do you get? You get two plus two. There's, there's a reason why you don't do that in the form of integers. Well, there may be a because, reason why you don't do that in the form of integers, because, but it's a joke, Matt. Don't take it, it too far. In an equation, you have to do the same thing. Rabbits. In an equation, you have to do the same thing on either side of the equal sign. So if you round down the two numbers on one side, you have to round down the number on the other side. That's that's where your maths logic fails. It, talk I know, about I know, I know pissing we're all about... over somebody's punchline. <laughs> it's maths. I like maths. <laughs> 
<laughs> Let's stick to science fiction. <laughs> <laughs> right, I think it was two episodes ago we had the long email from David Kitchen. This is the great death and mm. heaven debate. Yeah, and I was hoping when we recorded it that he wouldn't think I'd set him up just so that I could piss all over what he'd said. No, no. So I was happy when he emailed back and said, Good evening, JR. First up, I thought you gave my views on Death in Heaven a very fair and honest hearing. And that it did actually make for a far more interesting discussion than I expected, because we debated whether I should actually read it out and do the discussion before I did. So thank you for that. It was good to appreciate the episode from another point of view. And this is why I often enjoy your season ranking episodes, as I get to hear what you and other listeners think about those stories. One point I failed to mention in my original email that I think adds some context is that Death in Heaven came at the end of a season that I really enjoyed. The Matt Smith era never really clicked for me, but I thought after a wobbly start, Series 8 was packed with really fun episodes and a really good Doctor. So perhaps there was a particular disappointment that I felt Death in Heaven was, in my opinion, something of a throwback to the Series 6 style. Indeed, if you consider the relationship between a fan and the show as akin to that of two people, Series 5 was the I'm not sure where this is going period, Series 6 was the I think we should break up and see other people period, <laughs> Series 7 was the I miss you, let's get back together and see if we can make this work period, and Series 8 was the I remember why I love you period, <laughs> which is kind of what happened to the Doctor tonight, wasn't it? to follow that analogy though when you have had a breakup in a relationship followed by a reconciliation you are ultra sensitive to hints that what made you leave in the relationship is coming back if Mm -hmm. that makes sense Mm -hmm. which it does I listen to your comments on my plot issues and accept some and reject others certainly your comment about materials being created out of thin air being a genre staple was very fair although I'm consistent I also find it annoying in something like the Avengers films when Iron Man can create a whole gauntlet out of a watch or similar. But your broader point, I think, is a correct one. The mood in which you watch an episode will also cloud your view on that episode. I suspect that's why I can swallow the ridiculous end to Kill the Moon, because I was really buying into the episode up until then, whereas others just can't. As Matt put it, there were other elements in early parts of Death in Heaven that just weren't for me. So by the time you get to the cyber brig, my head is ready to explode. (laughs) Had that ending come at the end of the story I was enjoying, the end of a story I was enjoying, yes, I probably would have been more inclined to swallow it. Fair point. I would add, and there's a couple of things now that we might want to reply on, I would add that the other important element to consider is that I contend Stephen Moffat is such a focused writer with such a unique style that it's very easy for him to hit a target with some viewers and yet totally miss that target with others. The balance between I totally get this and I don't get this at all is so fine with his work. Mm. Because in the end, as I say, it all comes down to personal taste and Doctor Who is such a broad series that it's near impossible to please all of the viewers all of the time. And right, I'll break in because we carried on and had a bit of a conversation with about that. And yeah, I think my contention is that most authors will have a particular style and especially successful authors. I mean, if I think about the authors I think of as the most successful, 
then I would say they are the ones with the most idiosyncratic style. I mean, if you look at, I don't know, just off the top of my head, something like J.D. Salinger, you cannot imagine J.D. Salinger writing a Graham Greene plot mm. because J.D. Salinger's style is so idiosyncratic to J.D. Salinger plots and vice versa. And I think with somebody like Stephen Moffat and Russell T. Davis and Robert Holmes, they all have a distinctive style. You cannot imagine for example, I don't know, Invasion of the Dinosaurs, as written by Robert Holmes. Just as you cannot imagine Terror of the Autons, as written by Malcolm Hulk. And I think the issue now is that while during the John Pertwee era, you had a Malcolm Hulk story, and then a Robert Holmes story, and then a Bob Baker and Dave Martin story, and then a Terry Nation story, it's an authored series now. So... All the episodes are going to sound like Russell T. Davis, or all the episodes are going to sound like Stephen Moffat. And this was my ultimate contention, is that you have to get beyond the style. That's just what's on the surface of it. Mm. And look at the stories. I, th- I think I agree with him, though, that I think Stephen Moffat is more more distinctive than someone like Russell T. Davis. Definitely. And I, I think, Yeah, I think I he think... is. But but I don't I don't think he's more idiosyncratic. I think he's more distinctive. I'm making a distinction between those two. I think if you're more distinctive, if you're more if you're a more distinctive writer, then there's always going to be people that don't like that distinction. Yes. So that makes it more idiosyncratic. No, I don't think it makes it more idiosyncratic. It makes it more understandable that people don't like it. Yeah. And so but but my, my contention is, okay, if you can't buy it then that's fine. You just can't buy it. But what I would say to anybody watching it is, okay, don't blame the writer for being idiosyncratic. Mm. Either try and get beyond the idiosyncrasies to watching the stories and getting what you can out of them, or else just accept that you're not going to enjoy it. But, you know, you can't... The BBC have put him in place to write Doctor Who, Mm in Stephen Moffat's style because that's the writer they've... So you've just got to accept that he's going to be there for however long he's there. I also wonder, with Stephen Moffat, and I don't know how popular Stephen Moffat's previous previous writing has been in somewhere like Australia or America, but I was brought up on Press Gang and then I watched Bits of Coupling and I watched Jekyll and I watched, I've watched lots of Stephen Moffat and so I you think knew in what way, to expect. That's trained me up for yeah. recognizing his style and being mm. more comfortable in, with his style. And I think with with someone like Russell T. Davis, I think his style is is instantly grabbable. I think it's instantly popular. I think he's a more populist yeah, yeah, writer yeah, for sure. And I think that makes it that makes it more graspable. And I think uh, Chris Chibnall is a more populist writer as well. I think yes. that's yeah. that's why he's he's done things in America and here, and why mm. Broadchurch, where it didn't work in America, but it's clearly got that sort of that kind had of, enough appeal not, that they wanted about, to plough the money into it. It's not about being it. bland, it's just about being having a more universal voice, mm. I think. Mm. And I think Stephen Moffat, it's great that he doesn't have that, and he is very distinctive, if you've been <clears> trained <throat> up for him, if you've tuned your ear in to, mm. to, to following it. And I wonder I think, if we have. I think that's what modern TV kind of demands now. The, the idea of the, the showrunner stroke executive producer... Mm. Has has become embedded in in you know the last sort of ten fifteen years. So so you're in you're in that kind of phase where you want a, a distinctive voice, but you also want a certain consistency as well. Mm. And and certainly for Doctor Who, that helps with you know kind of story arcs and having that consistency. But also, I suppose 
um, there's that idea of recognizability and, you know, kind of knowing what you're going to get from a particular writer. And that's what you get with, with a writer who, if they're not writing every single episode, they're, they're certainly structuring storylines and, you know, um, giving a lot of notes to the writers that they bring in. Mm. And, you know, I, I mean, I like that because um, as, as long as you buy into Stephen Moffat's writing, then at least you have that that sort of comfort of knowing that there is going to be those threads that, that run all the way through. And I, th I think modern TV just, you know, has, has gone in that direction, you know, having lots of little different individual writers, I don't know, has, has, its, has its pros, but um, the consistency thing, I think, is what people, audiences want from a, a long-running series. Well, if you think about the original series, the most successful periods were when it had more consistency, when mm. Robert Holmes was clearly rewriting yeah. most of the scripts mm. to make them Robert Holmes scripts. Mm. And that's when, that's when the series was really powerful. Or, in, or when Barry Letts and Terry yeah. Sticks were working together to, to create a kind of a consistency. Mm. It's when you got inconsistency that's when it yeah when, when 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 well the thing about around, yeah. yeah but just to add on to that the thing about let's and dicks is although you had a malcolm hulk story one month and then a robert holmes story and then a terry nation story and then a bob baker and dave martin story and then a robert sloman story so you might have had five different types of stories in a series but then you came back the next year and got exactly the same yeah, yeah, five so that's and the following yeah, year yeah, exactly the same five again and also yeah. and also even though we, we're not a big fan the eric saywood Yes, yes, again, there's Had consistency. consistency. Yeah. It's just, just we don't... And, and Andrew Cartmel. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's when, oddly, somebody like Douglas Adams comes in, you kind of lose that, lose that consistency, bizarrely, even though he's... Because it doesn't... Yeah, but he only rewrites a certain amount of stuff. It's yeah. like Nightmare of Eden and yeah. the Horns of Nymon and Creature from the Pit. You've got occasional flashes of Douglas Adams yeah. and then whole passages where there's That's nothing. because he goes off to write. He's not yeah. interested. Yeah, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah. That's what I mean. If yeah. you had the Douglas Adams thing all the way through Creature from the Pit, yeah. it'd probably be this classic mm. that would have been remembered down the ages in the same way as City of Death yeah. has. But you've just got occasional flashes of Douglas Adams mm. and a whole lot of David Fisher. Mm. And it kind of sits somewhere in between and then budgetary issues and everything else. I still, you know, we, we say it, but I, I, I still like to believe that a certain amount of perspective will be gained from a few years' time. Oh, absolutely. Look back on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you look, look back at something like Terror of the Altons that came straight, well, not straight after, obviously, but you had this break between Infernos in season seven and then Terror of the Altons. And it's just like, what? It's a fresh start. Yeah. I was listening to... Um, the um, Flight Through Entirety podcast, catching up on them. Mm. And I was listening to the early Pertwee ones a couple of weeks ago, and it was interesting that they watched, you know, they're going through the series watching the whole thing in order. Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting that when they got to um, season seven mm. and, you know, Silurians, Ambassadors of Death and Inferno, rather than thinking they get better as they go along, you know, at least one of the guys, if not two of them, were like, yeah, no, I'm getting really bored of this now. By the time they were into Inferno, yeah. and actually said, oh my God, what a breath of fresh air. Thank God for Terror of the Autons. Mm. Which I think would have happened mm. at the time mm. if they'd have carried on doing seven-part stories into season eight. I think they had to stop that. And so season seven stands apart from the rest of Doctor Who mm. as this, like, glorious folly. 
that everybody loves, mm. but I don't think anybody would want any more of it. Really, I have to say, I was um, before we started watching the Matt Smiths again. I was watching the latter end of the Tenants, you know, the uh, specials, series four, right? and then into the specials. And yeah. I, I, as soon as I watched the uh, eleventh hour, I was just like, oh, thank God, <laughs> yeah, it did, and it that's did, that's it awful did. because I. At the time, I loved them. Yeah, yeah, but but I still so, love them. But, some, sometimes but you is. just need that clearing of the air, and because mm. uh, I felt like that when I saw Eleventh uh, Hour, it, it just felt like um, Matt Smith and Co had just hit the ground running. There mm. wasn't even that kind of period of oh, it's going to take me a few stories to kind of get used to it. I just felt like I was in a safe pair of hands right from word go. Yeah, yeah. Right, and that almost segues back into the email where David continues, that said, after... Yes, sorry, I thought I'd gone back in the wrong place. (laughs) That said, after five years, I'm certainly ready for something new from the show. While it's terrible to judge anything by a two-minute skit, my main reaction to the introduction of the new companion this month was, hasn't this all been done before? Fresh starts never hurt the show. I can't think of a single producer in the classic era who's coming into the role who wasn't a clear who's coming into the role wasn't a clear benefit, even if a couple did stay too long. <clears throat> Do we fresh, have... fresh starts are essential? To yeah, the show. yeah. You, you don't you don't, can't have Doctor Who without fresh starts. Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah. Doctor yeah. Who is yeah about fresh starts. Yeah, every yeah. story, yeah, almost every episode is a fresh start. And every to a degree, yeah. yeah. It's all it's woven in change. Yeah. yeah. Um do we want to mention about the did you all read the interview with Stephen Moffat in Doctor Who magazine and do you know what he said about the two minute thing which introduced Pearl Mackie? Oh no. I, I, I don't, I haven't read it no. I, I was too busy through. playing the stickers. Okay. Well, essentially, Stephen Moffat wrote three audition pieces for The Companion, so they saw God knows how many girls for the role of The Companion, who all did the three audition pieces to camera or whatever, and then they chose five, and those five auditioned those pieces opposite Peter Capaldi. And the second part of that process, when they auditioned those pieces opposite Peter Capaldi, is obviously to judge the chemistry the first half of that process, where they're auditioning, I don't know, let's say 75 for the sake of argument, girls with just the dialogue, is to assess whether they can do Stephen Moffat dialogue, right? Okay. So everybody who's complaining about this two-minute piece, oh, but we've seen that all before, it's just typical Stephen Moffat dialogue, that's kind of because it was written to be Stephen Moffat typical dialogue. Yeah. And I think the issue here is that when the BBC said to Stephen Moffat, right, we want you to announce the companion live at half-time in uh, the FA Cup semi-final, <laughs> presumably the chain of events is this. Stephen Moffat needs to pick a new girl in conjunction with his executive producer. Mm. And the BBC know this, obviously, because, you know, Doctor Who's due to go before the cameras and in May or June or whatever, and the BBC are stumping up the money for it, so yeah. they need to know where their money's going, somebody's going to be cast. Mm. So the BBC are waiting for Stephen Moffat to tell them, or Brian Minchin, who they've chosen. And presumably, Minchin or Moffat say to the BBC, right, this is who we've chosen. And the BBC say, right, how do we tell the world about this? Do we just put out a press release on the internet? Which is something that they've done before. Mm. And, you know, although that causes a splash... It doesn't cause a huge splash, and it tends to cause a splash amongst people who are already interested in Doctor Who news. Mm. 
So how do you cause a splash amongst people who are not interested in Doctor Who news? You put it on the telly instead, mm. like they did with Matt Smith's casting, like they did with Peter Capaldi's casting. But this isn't a Doctor. No, this so is a companion. You, you so you don't do out, a half-hour special. You can't mm. roll out Zoe Ball again, thank God. No. <laughs> so they said to Stephen Moffat, what ideas have you got of how we can put this on the telly in like maybe a two-minute slot at half-time in the FA Cup semi-final? you could have either ended up with like a 90 second interview with Pearl Mackey where she says some really not very interesting things Mm. and nobody really gets much of an impression of her at all because let's face it in these interview situations when she's still two or three months away from starting filming what's she gonna say yeah I'm really glad you heard me yeah you know or else Stephen Moffat just says to Brian Minchin why don't we film one of the three audition Mm. pieces we and so you know they've got 10 days or whatever to get the two actors together get a set struck up, film the dialogue. And so that's what they did. And it sounds like it had to be that scene because didn't he say that the other two scenes have actually made it into the, the series itself? Because one of them's the introduction to the TARDIS. And the other so one's that's, the meeting of the two characters. Yeah, so they can't, yeah. they can't do either of those scenes as a sort of preview because they'll want to that'll, actually that'll film them as part the of the series. And they'll yeah. also want to film so, them as so part of the So what we've episode. got here in terms of the trailer is literally a throwaway scene that has no direct connection mm. to the to the series at and all. And that's the other reason yeah. why they couldn't do either of those two because this way, if this never turns up in the series, as long as nothing in the series contradicts it, mm. yeah. you can always imagine that this takes place in a story that you've just never seen. Mm. Yeah. Whereas yeah. if it's their first meeting or her first yeah. introduction to the yeah. TARDIS, yeah. Yeah. it gets overwritten by whatever replaces it, yeah. doesn't it? And Capaldi's hair will change between now <laughs> yeah. and when he actually comes to things. So. Capaldi means there won't be a Dalek story. No, no there'll no, be a Dalek, Dalek story. I'm just people, thinking that, that yeah, people just, just forget about this. this well, I think, well, Stephen Moffat's kind forget. of said... It's not too fast, I won't forget... <laughs> Stephen Moffat essentially said you either won't get to see the moment where she first sees a Dalek or yeah. else this will be it and yeah. we'll just sort of refilm it. Okay. okay. So so it, so it may it may emerge in some shape or form mm. down the line. This is like the demo version, right? Okay. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. It, it will be refilmed because obviously what it is, yeah, yeah. audition yeah. pieces. Yeah. So yeah. So um, it's an audition piece, so you know, it it had certain I, I, you know, I have to I say that I was Quite non-committal about it. when I when I heard about it. Said, oh, are you excited? I was like, of course, with a companion. It's not. Yeah, a you doctor. can't tell yeah. anything. From and, but then I saw it and I was like, oh yeah, I was jumping around because I just thought you get the. It's kind of neither here nor there. What's coming out of their mouths? It's do you get a flavour of the companion? Mm. And yes, you do. And she was great. Mm. And that's there's, what makes it interesting. There's a nice there's a nice comedic edge to it. Yeah. Which, which I really loved, yeah. yeah her timing's um, great. Yeah. And, I, and another complaint was, why aren't they doing something new with it? But, you know, it's designed to be seen by the non-Doctor Who fans or watching the football yeah. or whatever. Mm. You know, a lot of those will have gone off and made a cup of tea or whatever, but, you know, when you're watching the football and there's five of you in a room, you don't all five of you go in the kitchen, mm. so the other four get to see it, whatever. Mm. You know what I mean? It's meant to be seen by people who wouldn't necessarily watch Doctor Who so you don't give them something that you're not expecting to see mm. in Doctor Who. You give them something that you are expecting to see in Doctor Who, yeah. right? And and Daleks, well, it doesn't come any better than that, really. Um, Daleks I, and a, a bit a, of a question. Human. A question to the team. Um, I, I take it... Is this a maths question? No, it's not a maths oh, okay. question because obviously we've established I'm rubbish at maths. Um, we'll, we'll not put... as rubbish as I am, according <laughs> to maths. You're also under the misapprehension it's a team. <laughs> Well, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's no JR in question for Matt. I, 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 use, I use the term loosely. No, um, will, uh, will Chris Chibnall inherit Pearl Mackey? 
I don't think so. I think it should be a one-series companion, to be mm. honest. Right. Okay. I, if I, was... I think they'll see how successful she is. Maybe, but if you're Chris Chibnall, you'd want to cast your own companion and you'd want to cast your own doctor. Mm. And, you know, if you're telling a story, you want to tell that story starting with chapter one. I, I wonder if Chris Chibnall was involved in the casting of the companion. They well, haven't said certainly that, not impossible. But, but I'd be surprised if he wasn't. It's nice to have a companion that bridges the Yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean, some, sometimes yeah, that's... Probably some... also, he's far too busy in Broadchurch Series not, 3 Not to... that busy to, to look at yeah, Russians of audition pieces. Yeah, but he's producing yeah, it but as to, well. To look at Russians of audition pieces uh, and, maybe, and but... footage and just email Stephen Moffat saying, yes, I agree. She's great. No, but from what they've said about her character, mm. I get the series, the impression she's very much a one-series character. Oh, yeah. She sounds to me like what they're doing with this companion is saying, right, let's have the non-companion companion, just to give the series a bit of a kick up the backside for 12 episodes, make it a bit more fun than mm. it has been for the last two or three years, make it a bit more lightweight than it has been for the last two or three years, do something a bit different that you can't really do in Doctor Who, because mm. to have a non-companion companion, that essentially doesn't work. You can make it work for a series. I don't think you could make it work for three series. No. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I was thinking Donna as a vibe mm. from from that scene in terms of they, they also wanted, I felt, wanted to inject a little bit more levity, a little bit more comedy into it. But but... I, wonder, I wonder with Donna, they couldn't have them, they couldn't have Donna for more than the series because Catherine Tate was too, too big mm. for the series. Whereas they've cast somebody at the beginning of their career. Oh yeah, I mean, she's as a Donna like as a Donna like character who they can p- potentially retain. Well, that was, well, thing, that was my question. I, I think I just wonder. Yeah. I just wonder. I think if she turns out, would she bridge? If she turns out to be tremendously successful, then they're not going to. No. Then they will possibly they will change the plan. So they probably we don't know. No, we don't know. <laughs> I'm saying the best guess yeah. is Chris Chibnall will want to start with a new Doctor and a new We've companion. Information about Peter. Yet, no, absolutely. Yeah, so. They could both stay on, yeah. but if you're going to start a brand new, I think Chris he'll, he'll want a new Doctor for sure. And I um, think I don't know where I was reading about Peter Capaldi, but I think Peter Capaldi will go because he was talking about three years being mm. the optimum, and mm. he was talk, starting to talk about he was starting to prepare the way. Yeah, he was starting to talk about leaving before yeah. it was even mm. announced yeah, yeah. that Chris Chibnall was yeah. taking over and Stephen Moffat was stepping down. And so down. the amount of time until 2018, mm. you'll do, I, I don't think... Well, yeah. But um, going back just a slight bit, with Donna, in her first episode in The Runaway Bride, she had that bit where she puts the brakes on the Doctor and she becomes his soul when he's killing all the baby spiders. Mm. And I think that's what made her a companion rather than the funny stuff with yeah. Catherine Tate. That's what gave, made her a companion who could have been more than a one-year companion had it come to that. Mm. And I, I just get the impression with this one, they're literally just going to throw her in and have her be the girl who says, this is all stupid for a year. Do you know what I mean? A lot more depth than that. Yeah. But essentially, I get the impression that that's her role in the series to sort of say, well, hang on, isn't this all a bit daft? And that's what we saw in the audition piece mm. as well, of Absolutely, course. Absolutely, yeah. So, yeah, if she's really successful, maybe they can develop it. But I just got the impression that they're not chucking her in as somebody to develop, but somebody to just hold the water for 12 episodes. Mm. Anyway, we've now been on this email for 
27 minutes and I promised Matt an early night. Oh, yeah, it's fine. And we haven't even got to the point that I wanted to bring it's, up. It's only, uni- <laughs> it's only university work tomorrow. University can survive by itself. Exactly. It's not that they haven't got other dons. My final point. <clears throat> Back to David Kitchen. My final point, though, is to reject the idea that Moffat's writing is too clever for some viewers who need it all put on screen for them. This is not my problem with his writing. I actually quite like this style in plenty of other series and movies. My problem is the style and tone of his writing, which I've always conceded is completely down to personal taste. Sadly, however, there is a long trope online of fans using the line, you're too stupid to understand Moffat's work, which is simply wrong and misses the point. And I'm not saying that you said that, it's just that you sailed a little too close to that for my liking. So I'll come back to that because we're almost at the end. Anyway, a fair and interesting discussion. But the thing about this show is that for every death in heaven that I don't like, there's a heaven sent. For every Let's Kill Hitler, there's a listen. And for every Series 6, there's a Series 8. In the end, it's all personal taste. Just like a certain listener of yours thinks the JNT years are better than the Pertwee years. I could spend hours disagreeing with him. But in the end, that's his opinion. Mm, absolutely. And that's from David Kitchen. I quite like that. I think, cool, I think, oh, I love it. I think the only reason we would sell close to that sort of thing is it's more to do with people trying to justify that the reason they're not understanding it is because it's badly written. That's the that's my yeah, that's, the that's point. my bugbear make... about it. And and David quite rightly says no, he he understands that it's well written. He just doesn't like the way it plays out. So that's Yes, which is two different things. Yeah. And that's what I was saying and perhaps didn't say quite so black and white. Yeah, we're not it's not it's other people's intelligence, it's just it's not No, the stupidity is in making out that because she didn't enjoy it, there's something fundamentally wrong with it. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. Anyway, that was that. I think we should go and let Matt have some sleep before he goes off to university. Oh, I've got my my tenth doctor's Yeah, yeah. You're gonna open it live on Live on air I podcast. Oh, yeah? Live on record. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's just <laughs> to me. This is Pod- going to be like podcast gold. It is. Can Sound, you can you hear it? He's opening it's it. Slightly preferable he's to the it. sound of mastication. Is he's this a little bit like? <laughs> he's now undoing his zip. <laughs> is this a bit like the radio show that you did with Lee once, which involved a picture quiz? <laughs> Andy's laughing. This happened. They really? did a picture quiz what? live on a radio show on the phonic screwdriver about two years ago. You did a picture quiz? Yes, you did a picture quiz on the phonic screwdriver. I, yeah, the pictures were on a website, weren't they? They were, but only about 3% of the people mm. listening to the radio were looking at the pictures. <laughs> you don't know that? I no, Lee. I don't know that, but it certainly wasn't 100%, <laughs> it's, was it's it? It's normally least uh, cellophane. cellophane. Do you know that's the, sound uh, of, that's the sound of fire on radio? Why? Why? Oh, no, it's like a little book. Yes, it's gorgeous. Yeah, it's very nice. It's a very it's nice very package. Oh, I don't know if there's many of these left. I didn't realise it was a limited. description for our Yeah, for our what listeners. is it? What so is I've it? just opened <laughs> the first limited edition box set of the 10th Doctor Adventures, which obviously I've heard before because we've already talked about this it. This is Big Finish. This is Big Finish. Oh. The first three, Technophobia, Time Reaver, Death and the Queen. And it is a gorgeous oh, set. lovely book. It's lovely, isn't it? Beautiful artwork. People oh. listening to this podcast are going to absolutely love this. The, oh yes, of course. This is going down really well. Turned off, right? Especially if they haven't been able to get all the coffees. Yes. They'll have turned off two podcasts. I wasn't. I know. Any reason I've, I didn't. I wasn't aware that all the extra stuff. I thought I was just getting three stories. I didn't realise there's other discs and stuff in there. 
There are two other discs. One is uh, a sort of documentary stroke loads of interviews about that set. And the other one is a documentary stroke loads of interviews about Big Finish's Doctor Who work in general. Okay. So I, I take it we get the vibe that um, David Tennant is happy to be back in the, the Doctor Who universe. I get the vibe that Matt Smith is not far off, is he? Probably won't be. No. Now that he's not in Terminator anymore. <laughs> me. Well, they it's true. Now that they've cancelled the sequel. Oh, really? I think, didn't they? They pretty, pretty much did that after the first. I haven't seen it, no, so I, think I can't comment. I'm sure I've read something Genesis. official this week that's mm-hmm. knocked it on the head, right. as opposed to just the assumption that it was knocked on the head. Do you not want to listen to it? I've Simon's already, I've like, already heard it. So, oh, right. Simon's lending me the precious. Ooh. And I've got a car journey tomorrow. Which means I can, I can use it. In the Before car. this gets any further away from anything that anybody <laughs> might actually want to listen to, <laughs> we just say goodbye. Okay. Next week... Oh, I'm I'm sure next week we've got a weird things going on with the lineup, so I'm not going to say what we're going to do next week because whatever I say, it'll probably end up not being what it is. So until then, oh, this is very pretty, isn't it? I think it was until to say. then. Oh, I was Matt. I was Simon. I was Andy. And I was Jr. <laughs> guys plan this yeah yeah what the hell did you oh let's open something live on air and not even you know it's, oh it's lovely oh it's lovely oh yes so it is <laughs> mm, yes it's really lovely it's a moment in time yeah yeah it was a moment in time go throw the, the picture quiz okay do you know what <laughs> the, listen, the listeners will be touched by by simon's excitement in opening, opening well the thingy. i tell you what I didn't press stop because I thought, no, I wonder so if we can get an Easter egg out of this. <laughs> so here you go. Here's a moment in time for the listener too. There's this JR rolling a cigarette live on the Easter egg. I, th- I think Simon opening the the big finish thing was more healthy than you rolling a cancer, si- <laughs> cancer stick. Maybe it was. <laughs> this this is this is proper, you know, it's nice. It is. <clears throat> I think it's an event. Although this will yeah. be dangerous to your health if you don't pay attention while you're driving. I'm gonna burn so. I'm gonna burn it in the car. <laughs> Inhale it as I'm driving to Cornwall. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> Hell yeah, yeah, why not? <laughs> fine. It'll be fine. But
Do you know what? The listeners to this podcast, they want to know how my voice got to be so damn sexy. And, you know, 40 years of smoking cigarettes, that's the answer to that question. Okay. So obviously that's important for the listener, right? Mm. Yes, Everybody's looking at me as if I've just said the <laughs> most ridiculous and also thing your, ever. Your twenty years as a male prostitute, also. Well, also, that wasn't anything to do with the voice. Effect. That's my um, oh, personal preference. I, I, no, really... that's my walk. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was a bit of both. I, I can't wait to. Hear well, this it was one <laughs> night back in December, nineteen ninety-five. <laughs> 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 but I didn't think you'd want to bring that up on the podcast. Oh.